Everyone has an idea, but is it right? Everyone seems to know what a Christian is, how the Christian life should look, and what kind of place the church should be. But are we even close? What if we could know? What if it looks different than we think? What if what God is building is more than a group of good people, but a community? Join us as we walk through the book of Philippians and see together a beautiful community. All right, kids ages uh, three through pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. The rest of you, uh, grab a Bible and open it to the book of Philippians. If you don't have a Bible with you, our passage for this morning is in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, there there are a bunch on the back table. We'd love to put one in your hand, Uh, but it's going to be good for you to have the text in front of you as we do this. So believe it or not, we are in our seventh week in the study of Philippians, and we are just now getting to the second chapter. I suppose that doesn't bode well. Uh, But we're supposed to be here till the summer, so we're good. All right. Um, So the first chapter of this book has been Paul basically giving a greeting, kind of letting letting this this uh, this church, this church in Philippi, know how he's doing. Because they he though he started this church, uh, he had since had to move on and they've they've heard that he's in a bad way, and he is. He's in jail. Uh, He's in jail. Everyone who was with him or supported him, has abandoned him. Uh, things, are, things are not going well for Paul. But he's letting the church in Philippi know he's fine with where he is because God put him there for the furtherance of the gospel, which is really all he cares about. But now he begins to turn the camera around and look at them. Like I said, Paul started this church. That's something that we call in our circles church planting. He, he planted this church. And now he wants to encourage them, teach them, grow them in the faith. But how, right? Like, what, what should the pattern of growth look like? If, if we were to set out a model or a kind of a, a way of being that we say, that's the way we want our, our Christian growth to look, what would we follow? And that is where, friends, like in all things Christian, we look to Jesus. So if you have your place in Philippians chapter 2, uh, let's stand in honor of God's word. That's our habit here before the sermon. As we do this, as we read this, let me just remind us that this is, this is God's word. This is not... Um, this is not just a, a, a bunch of handy thoughts by old dead people, right? This is not a, a bunch of neat ideas that uh, some people in a smoke-filled room at some point decided, let's, let's grab these books instead of others. This is God's Word, and it lays claim on us. Let's hear it in that way. So, if there's any comfort in Christ, any encouragement from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but a humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look, not to his own interests, but to the interests of others, and have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." This is God's word, given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, whether we know it or not, we enter this place as needy people. 
Uh, I'm uniquely aware of my own need this morning. I'm sure some of my friends here are uniquely aware of theirs. Others of us are not, and so we need you to meet us all in that place to either communicate your gospel to our need, or first to show us our need, and then to communicate your gospel. But in all things, Lord, we need you to speak life to us this morning. And so we ask that you would. Lord, we need, we need you, and so we ask that all that Jesus has done, his life, his death, his resurrection, that those things might come to the fore, and that the one who speaks might fall to the wayside, so that Lord, you get all the glory because you alone hold the words of eternal life. And so we ask that you would speak, for we are listening. In Christ's name, amen. Have a seat. So if if you're familiar at all with, like, music, if you're a musician or maybe you just, you know, maybe, maybe you're into jazz, you're probably familiar with the concept of improvisation, right? Now, I say music because improv is also a concept in comedy, uh, but uh, musical or even theatrical improvisation is way different than uh, whose line is it anyway, which is funny, but not what I'm here to talk about this morning. So uh, musical improvisation, or even theatrical, but since I'm a musician, I'll talk about music. Musical improvisation is where a musician understands the melody so well, understands the theme, the melody that the, that the, the composer was trying to uh, communicate, that they are able to improvise or create a melody around it that is faithful to the original, but not exactly like it. Right? That's what improvisation is. When you hear, when you hear jazz improv and things like that, it is, it, is, uh, create, it is a musician on the fly, mostly, sometimes it's rehearsed, but mostly creating a theme that is faithful to the original, but not exactly like it. Uh, now, in some ways... Every performance is improvisation because each artist puts their own interpretation of playing the music. But true improvisation is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult because as as strange as it seems to to many of us, we think, well, they're just going to make it up on the fly. How difficult is that? True improvisation has to be so wedded to the original. It's like you have to have such intimate knowledge of it that it actually is seen as faithful while also creatively adapting it for something different. And I, I say this, and I'm talking about this, because that's what this passage is about. This passage, which, which is interesting, because the latter half of it is a song. Uh, most scholars will say that, that Philippians 2, uh, especially 5 through 11, is, is a song, uh, kind of a hymn that, that Paul either Paul wrote or he had picked up from the other church. And, and this is a song that was sung of Jesus, and yet the whole thing is basically saying, go and take this and make it your own. Here's your melody. Now go improvise in the world. So that's what we're looking at this morning. We're going to look at this in in three ways. We're going to look at the question and call. That's in the first couple of verses. Then we're going to look at the model and means. And then finally, we're going to look at laying down and lift it up. You can find an outline. It's it's that little white sheet of paper in your bulletin. That's helpful. If not, just leave it there. So here's the thing. As we get started, there's so much in this passage. We could really spend like several weeks on this. Uh, and, and many of you, maybe, if you grew up in the church or have been part of things where you've seen this preached on a bunch, maybe, maybe you've, you've actually heard it preached on a ton. Uh, and, and so what we're going to do this morning, though, is we're going to try and take this in a big picture way to see what Paul is trying to accomplish with it, right? Because he's not just stating this because it's like, well, this kind of flows nice. So I'm going to go with this. Paul actually has a purpose. He's trying to accomplish something by stating this. So we need to get at it. Let's, let's start this by seeing the foundational question. Look at verse 1. If you look down at verse 1, there's a series of four if statements. If this, 
If this, if this, if this, if... And so these lay a foundation for what is going to come later, okay? If, if, you're, if you're familiar with theological language, right? Uh, in theological language, we would say that Paul is laying out an indicative that will then be the foundation for his imperative, right? He's laying out a who you are before he gets to what you need to go do, which is always the way of Christianity. We always lay out the who, who you are first, okay? Now, follow me, because this is really important. We would say that everything that Paul asks of us in, those four if, or, or in, this, in this passage that we're going to get to in a second, all of these things that he asks of us, all things being equal, are impossible. And that's why he asks these if questions. The truth is that unless these things that he's saying with these if questions, we're going to go one by one with them in a second, if these are true, if these are not true, rather, then everything he asks of us is impossible. So we need to make sure that these things are true first. Okay, so let's look at them quickly. First he says, if therefore anyone has comfort in Christ. Now I know most of your translations say encouragement, and then they say the next word is comfort, right? Uh, those two words are, are, are they're kind of synonymous, but the, the original word that Paul used is getting at something very specific. Okay, that is the same word right there. That, that, like I said, I translated comfort. Most of your translations say encouragement. It's the same word used in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, in which the, the prophet Isaiah moves from talking about uh, all of these um, crises that are going on, and he suddenly moves in chapter 40 to talking about the end of God's people's exile. And he begins it with the word comfort. Maybe you're familiar with Handel's Messiah. Comfort, comfort ye, my people. Like that, that's the exact same word, okay? So what, what that word talks about is experiencing forgiveness from your offense towards God. So that word comfort is meant to be an experience of forgiveness. It is seeing the offense, not just kind of having some kind of blind forgiveness given to you of which you don't know what you did wrong. It is seeing your offense and it being so weighty upon you that you actually need comfort and then experiencing it, right? So it is an experience of forgiveness from God. Then he says the next if statement, if there is any encouragement from love. Again, I know most of your translations say comfort, right? Like I said, those two words are very close to synonymous. But Paul is drawing out specific concepts. This word that that your translations probably say comfort, uh, I translate encouragement, means being encouraged by the love of God. In other words, it is understanding our unworthiness Understanding our unworthiness, but also receiving freely God's love. Okay, you with me? Next he says, if anyone has participation in the Spirit. And by Spirit, Paul doesn't mean some kind of like vacuous idea of some kind of disembodied presence. He means the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, Uh, If you're new to Christianity, Christians believe that God exists as one God in three persons. One what in three who's. And the third person of that is the Holy Spirit. And that when, when, when you become a Christian, when you, when you rest alone on Christ alone, that, that that Holy Spirit actually comes to dwell in you as a Christian. And so to participate in the Spirit means to have the Spirit dwell in you. Lastly, he says, if there is any affection and sympathy. In other words, another way to say that is there, if there is any compassion and mercy. The exact same concepts. And what that means is God looking on our weakness... Not with scorn, but with love. And I know that's bizarre to most of us, right? Because we've come to view our own weakness as something to scorn, as something to kind of be shameful about. But this is about receiving 
love and not scorn. Now, here's the deal. All of these ifs go together in a package deal we call being a Christian. So what Paul is saying here at the beginning is, look, if these things are true of you, this is what we need to go do. If these things aren't true of you, good luck. But we have to start with the ifs. And the key to that is that in Christ part in the first one. Did you you see that? If there's any, the ESV says, if there's any encouragement in Christ. Now, a linguist, kind of a Greek linguist, will tell you that that phrase, in Christ, is meant to actually modify each of those if statements. Okay? In other words, if you have comfort in Christ, if there's encouragement in Christ, if participation in the Spirit in Christ, if compassion and mercy in Christ, all of them are about being in Christ. Christ. Paul's saying, if you are a Christian, then this is what's coming next is for you. And if you aren't, then it's not. Real simple. So if you're here and you're a Christian this morning, you're about to hear a, a call. It's a weighty call. But it's one that Paul says, if you're a Christian, this is for you. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I just invite you to listen in. Okay? Listen in. Now, you see, here's, here's the problem. If, if we are new to Christianity, what we're probably thinking at this, part, at this point is, I'm not exactly sure what, what this guy's talking about at all, but I'm pretty sure that this doesn't sound like what I thought being a Christian was, the comfort and encouragement and, and, and participation in the Spirit, whatever that is. But you see, it is, in fact, because the Bible teaches us that all of us are broken, that by nature we are all turned away from God. Uh, and, and that isn't, that isn't how God created humanity, but it's where we are now. The scriptures kind of teach us that we were made for a dependent relationship with God, to love him with all that we are and to be loved by him. But in fact, that we've betrayed him, that by nature now we are turned away from him, seeking our independence, wanting our own way. And Christianity is about God coming to us in our helplessness and rescuing us from, our, from that state through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It isn't Jesus came to show us the way to God. It is that Jesus is the way. That's what that in Christ part means. We place our faith in him and we are forgiven of our sins. In other words, we have comfort. We are adopted as God's children. We have the encouragement of love. We are made new by the Spirit and able to live dependently on God. That's what participation in the Spirit means. And we have the smile of God even as we stumble and struggle. And if Christians try and tell you that they don't, they're liars. The good news of the Gospel is that even as we stumble, even as we struggle, even as we live out of accord with every one of those ifs, we still have the smile of God because of His compassion and mercy on us in Christ. That is what it means to be a Christian, trusting in Jesus and being gifted these things, not earning them, but receiving them. That is the foundation of this command that Paul gives. So again, if that's true of you this morning, then I need you to clue in real, real, uh, real clearly for the rest of what I'm about to say. If that's not, just listen in. I'd love for you to listen in and see what we think it means to walk that out. Okay, Let's look at that now. Look down at verse 2 to 4. Paul says, if this is true of you, Then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but each for the other. Now stop there. 
We could probably parse out verse 2 and all those sayings, but really, we, we don't really have time for it. What, what Paul is calling for right there is unity. And if you were here last week, you heard us talk about that, right? That unity is a pretty big deal as Christians and in the church. But, but let me be clear on a couple of things. By unity, what we do not mean is uniformity. The idea that Christians are kind of mindless automatons who all kind of go through life and they have the exact same high diddly do kind of attitude towards everything and, and, and no one thinks for themselves. I know Christians have that rap. That's not what he means. The call for unity is just that. It is everyone on the same page, especially with what he says in verses 3 to 4. What he is calling for here in, in, in kind of this section is for this community of Christians to stop looking out for number one and to instead look out for each other. Now, I know that some of you are thinking, that sounds an awful lot like being a doormat. But this is not doormat thinking, okay? Doormat thinking is where one person is constantly living for someone or everyone else, right? And, and that, the dirty little secret of this, and if you know me, I, I love to share these little secrets that no one wishes I would share, but the dirty little secret of being a doormat is that it seems really self, selfless, but that person is actually trying to get something from a people. They give. They give a ton so that they can get. They get from giving. They get the sense of being needed. Maybe they get the sense of being the savior of the world. Like, if I'm not helping people, who's going to help them? I have to help them. Because without me, everyone is lost. But what Paul is talking about isn't that at all. The key is this sense of unity. A Christian community, which is another way of saying church, a church is supposed to look like a bunch of people giving up their supposed rights to care each for the other. That's why the unity is so important. We are united in thinking about others, one another, more than we think about ourselves. It's not, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And so when we do this, no one is a doormat. Right? No one is a doormat because others are putting us higher than themselves. Each of us is placing the other higher. It's kind of like, I remember the little Chip and Dale cartoons when you were younger. and like It was like the, the two little chipmunks. And they walk around and be like, after you, no after you, no after you. Like, that kind of idea. Like I'm going to place you higher than me. And you are placing me higher than you. Paul says this is what a Christian community, this is what a church is supposed to look like. Now, Whether you're a Christian or not, what you're probably thinking right now is, that sounds impossible, right? To do nothing out of selfish ambition. How are you doing with that? I'm not doing too well, if I'm being honest with you. Like, to do nothing out of that? Why we're supposed to do that and how comes down to the story of Jesus as both the model and means. Look down at verses 5 to 8. I said this earlier, that scholars believe that this is a song, this is a kind of a, a hymn uh, that, that makes a lot more sense in Greek than it does in English in terms of hymnody, though, though uh, it, it really was us that made up the idea of everything having to rhyme. Um, that, that either Paul wrote it or, the, or he's using it here. But let's, let's look at those verses. Paul says, Have the same mind that was in Christ, who, though existing in the form of God, did not see equality with God something to be grasped. Now, I need to, I need to explain that a little bit because that can be very easily misunderstood. In fact, it has been easily misunderstood throughout the history of the church. Okay? 
Um, that word form, that Christ existed in the form of God, uh, if you're interested in Greek lingo, that's the word morphe, okay? And, and that word, when we say form in English, we need an outward appearance, do we not? Like to take the form of something is to have an outward expression of it. But that word in Greek means the qualities that are essential to it. So saying that Jesus existed in the form of God did not mean that he just appeared to be God, but that he is God. That he is God. That the, essential, the things that are essential to being God are Jesus. Now this is important to what comes next because of how we think of God, right? Because we tend to think that the more power you have, the more ability you have to do whatever you want. In fact, that's really the goal of American culture, is it not? To get as much autonomy, as much power, as much independence as we can so that I can do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. Sounds awesome. It just has nothing to do with being God. Paul explains here, he uses that phrase, that though he existed in the form of God, that equality wasn't something to be grasped. And that phrase, uh, as we unpack it here, I want to just kind of say that it, it, that phrase is meant to make us look back to the garden. And by garden, I mean the garden of Eden, like Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible. You remember that story? Adam is, is in the image of God, but that's not good enough. That eventually uh, a little uh, slithery, well at the time apparently it, it, there was not slithering going on, but uh, this, this uh, serpent shows up and says, um, you know, the whole fruit thing, I know that God told you, you're not going to die if you eat that thing. I know he told you that just because he doesn't want you to be equal with him. He knows that if you eat it, you're going to be equal with him. And Adam says, sounds good. I, I, I'd like to be equal to God, Right? And so Adam, who was not, had no equality with God, actually did reach out and grasp something that wasn't his to grasp. That's what broke us in the first place. Adam at first, and now every one of us since, wants to be equal to God. But here Jesus is equal with God, but does the opposite. And so that phrase, something to be grasped, has a bit of a double nuance. Not only does it mean something to be reached out and used, it means something to be used for our own benefit, For us, exploited. In other words, it means that though Jesus was God, he didn't see his godness as something to be exploited, as something to use for himself. Instead, Paul says, he took the form of a servant. Same word, right? And that phrase emptied himself. Check in if you've checked out. Check in because this is super important. When it says that Jesus emptied himself, it doesn't mean that he left his godness in heaven. And somebody's like, okay, well, I'm going to put this aside, and now I'm not going to be God anymore. And now I'm going to come down, and I'm going to be man. Now, that has been an ancient heresy that has kind of been promoted throughout, at different periods throughout time. God the Son did not somehow cease being that when he took on flesh. Emptying doesn't mean to leave something behind. It means pouring yourself out. It means pouring yourself out. So in the context, what it means is that instead of using his godness for himself... He poured it out for others. So Paul is saying that though he was God, he didn't use that for himself, but for others. And he did this by becoming obedient unto death on a cross. And Paul says death, and then he says even death on the cross. And that should make sense to us, right? Because even in our day, we know that there's death, and then there's death, right? There's like 
quietly in your bed with your family gathered around you, lovely. And then there's like, ooh, that is a bad way to go. Right? In the, in the ancient world, in the Roman world, Jesus went the worst way you could possibly go. There is nothing more painful or humiliating or awful than hanging on a cross uh, by, by stakes that have been put through you while you asphyxiate because you can't get up to breathe. Oh, and you're naked. And everyone's watching you. You think public speaking is bad, right? Like, it's awful. He took the most painful and humiliating kind of death possible in the Roman world, and he was willing to use all of his godness to take upon himself death in our place for our sins. And that was unexpected enough, but the story didn't end there, and neither does the song. Look down at verses 9 to 11 as we look at low to high. Paul says, therefore, and and again, every once in a while it's important to remember little grammatical keys, little keys to reading. When when we see a therefore, it means that what comes after is then grounded on what came before, Right? That the therefore is now, what you're about to read is not in spite of, but because of what just happened. So because he used all of his godness for us, God highly exalted him. And the, the, the word that Paul uses there is a superlative. It's like God raised him up, but it's like you throw Uber on the front of it. And I'm being quite literal, actually. It, that's where the Germans got the word Never mind. Anyway, the, the Greek equivalent. He's like, as, as, high as, as highly as this guy could be exalted, he's been exalted. And so all that Paul says here, name above every name, knees bowing, tongues confessing, all of that is stuff that in the Old Testament is used to speak about God. Right? It's all used to speak about God. And so what Paul is basically saying is, though the world would think, and by the world, I don't just mean the Roman world. I mean us. So we would think that what Jesus did was weak. That it was, in fact, his being crucified by Rome was the very thing that would convince everyone this guy isn't God. That God the Father raised him up so that every knee would bow and tongue confess that in spite of their deepest held opinion, that this is, in fact, exactly what God is like. This is exactly what God is like. Jesus is God. Now follow me for a second. Because the point that Paul is making is this. We think, it's like hardwired into our brains, that that exaltation, exaltation, being made much of, being lifted high, that this comes by using our power, by using our rights, by using our agendas for us, don't we? This is totally a human thing. This is why we chase money, and this is why we chase power and success and acceptance from others. That's why all of us do it. And Paul is saying that true exaltation comes by using everything at your disposal, not for yourself, but for others. Jesus is God, but used that for others, to save others. And because of that, he was exalted by God and shown as God to the world. That is what Paul is calling us to. Do you see that? He says, this is what he meant by counting others better than yourself. By doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. This is what he's talking about. Be like this. It is taking up the life of Jesus who didn't use everything that he was and exploit it for himself, but instead used his rights, his power, or even his agenda. He laid it all down 
because he was God, he gave himself for others, following the will of the Father for the flourishing of others. Now, what I want to do is kind of apply this in two ways. There's a million ways that we could talk about this, and we could get into the way nitty-gritty. But the elders don't give me that much time. So we have, I just want to talk about two, two ways with a couple of sub-things under there, okay? The, the first thing I want to do is a little more theological, a little more theoretical, maybe, and the second more practical, okay? The first one, Christ the sinner. Here's the f- crazy thing about what Paul is doing here. I think I told you this, maybe it was last week, maybe it was the week before, that Paul picks his words very carefully, that there's nuance there when he writes. And, and Paul is, is doing that same thing here. In verse 6, we generally translate it, though he was God, right? Look down at verse 6, you see that? Who, though he was in the form of God. And that's, that's perfectly viable. You can translate it that way. But a lot of scholars believe, I'm I'm of the same opinion, that what in fact Paul is doing, it can be translated though. In fact, for many of us, it does mean though, because that is, we have an image of God in front of us, but there's a double meaning here. It also can mean because. Because he is God, he didn't exploit his godness. See, friends, Jesus actually reveals to us what God is like. Jesus reveals to us what God is like. If your vision of God is the indomitable tyrant who throws temper tantrums when people disobey him, a particular cosmic version of certain candidate that's out there today, okay? We need to let Jesus reframe that. If that's your vision of God, who just kind of kicks his feet, stomps his feet, and starts throwing lightning bolts at people when they disobey him, we need to reframe that around Jesus. Because what Paul is saying here is that this is the kind of God that Christians worship. And frankly, the kind of God that's revealed in all the Bible. God doesn't ever exploit his godness. Because he's secure in himself. He doesn't need to. Jesus reveals God to us. But also, this song that Paul quotes highlights two other ways that Jesus is the center of Christianity. Not only does he reveal God, but he accomplishes redemption. Again, we need to press in on this. The reason that Paul gives the foundation at the beginning, that this way of being is only for those who are Christians, is because Christianity is not about working your way to God. It's not Paul saying, okay, to get to God, you need to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. To get to God, what you need to do is to treat others better than yourselves, to not look out for your interests, but each for the other. If that were the case, we are all doomed. Maybe you can make it for about five and a half seconds. The gospel tells us that you and I are invariably bent in on ourselves. We were made for God and others, but we are stuck on ourselves. Jesus came and did what he did, humbled himself, died in our place, because you and I couldn't get back to God. If you are bent in on yourself, you cannot possibly turn outwards towards others in God. It isn't just hard, it's impossible. It's impossible. So Jesus came to live perfectly, to die sacrificially, and to rise victoriously, to reconcile us to God, and to turn us right side out by the power of the Spirit. Not only does Jesus reveal God, he accomplishes our redemption. And the last thing about this is this little phrase, every knee and every tongue. Christianity does not play nice with other worldviews. 
I know we wish it did because that's very, that's our kind of the pluralistic age we're in. We want everybody's worldviews to kind of be okay together. Christianity does not play nice with other worldviews. When the Bible says Jesus is Lord, it doesn't mean for me. When it says Jesus is Lord, it doesn't mean for those who believe him to be. When it says Jesus is Lord, it means he is Lord. You may not recognize that lordship, but that doesn't mean it isn't true. You may also run towards the back as fast as you can and say, I don't believe in the brick wall until you smack it. Then it doesn't matter what you believe. Jesus is Lord. One day, every knee will bow to Jesus, some willingly unto joy and some unwillingly unto judgment. But please see that even in light of that, and as strident as that sounds, and it is strident, I'm not going to dance from that, that the Lord is willing to forgive. He's willing to forgive our rebellion. If he can forgive me, he can forgive anyone, but you have to return to him. Now, that was the theoretical. Let's take up the practical a little bit by taking up the song. Here's the thing. Like I said, this, this, this song that Paul is quoting, right? he's quoting and it's about Jesus, and you and I can't do that. I don't just mean like you can't be unselfish. I mean... You can't do what Jesus did, right? He's God. He became human while keeping his godness. 100%, 100%, all that weird math. Then he died for other people's sins. You and I can't do that. We can't do that. And so instead, we are called to improvise. We are called to know that melody so well that we play it faithfully, but in our own context. So let me lay out a few ways that this must be true for Christians. First, if Paul means anything by this, he means that we have to be people who lay down our rights. Our culture makes an art form of selfishness, right? We make an art form of it. My time, my money, my self-expression, my, 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 my. And listen, those things are real. It's not as if, what, what Christianity does not say is, you don't really have any rights at all. You don't really have any of those things. That's not it at all. Christianity does not somehow cut the legs out of, out of things so that everyone is completely like this bland, uh, kind of flavorless batch of people. Some of you have more resources than others. Some of you have more time. Some of you have more relational capacity. Some of you are just like stinking gifted it isn't sin to have those things. But the life that we were made for as humans, the life that we were redeemed for as Christians, is to turn all of your rights, all of those things that you say, this is mine, to turn all of those things, all of your privilege, and to pour it out for others. So the question is, who is it for? Not, do I have the resources? Do I have the time? Do I have the gifts? Do I have the abilities? The question is, who is it for? Is it for you? Is it for you to build your brand or your comfort or your savings account? Or are we to use all that we have to see others flourish, especially, as Paul says, here in the church? So first of all, it's about laying down our rights. The second thing is about laying down our agendas. Because the thing that, that what, the phrase that gets lost in this is that Jesus became obedient to death. Obedience means that he wasn't calling his own shots, right? 
So when you make decisions, especially big life decisions, where's the Lord in that? If you're a Christian, look, if you're not a Christian, I don't expect you to like, spend any time seeking the Lord's face on, on big decisions, right? Figure it out with the Lord, and then, and then we'll, we'll figure out how to do decisions. But if you are a Christian, when you make these big decisions, where's the Lord in that? Are you taking time in prayer? Taking time in, in Bible study? Even seeking wise, godly counsel to see what the Lord might be calling you to? Or are you simply seeing, what is it that would satisfy me today? What is it that's going to satisfy me? This would satisfy me. Actually, not doing this would satisfy me. So that's what I'm going to do. You see, we were made for dependence on God, even down to the path that we walk. I am not saying, please do not hear me say that if you do this, God's going to skywrite it for you. Buy the Corvette. I'm I'm actually certain he won't write that. But um, not that I wouldn't mind one. What I'm saying, though, is that we need to place our goals, our dreams, and our agendas at his feet. But how do we do this? And I talk about this a lot, right? I, I ask that question a lot. If you've been here enough, you hear me say, like, but how do we do this? A lot. Because that's important. Because this is the difference between good news, that is gospel, and good advice. If we just go, hey, before you make a big decision, you need to pray. Like, that's good advice. But this is about good news. This isn't self-help. If you try and just do this more, do this better, it will fail. Because we will constantly think that our doing this will get us something, right? It'll be about us. The only way, listen to me close, the only way you can lay down your rights, the only way you can lay down your agenda so that others might flourish is if you believe that there is nothing that your rights or your agenda can actually offer you. The only way that you will be able to lay those down for others is if you believe there is nothing that it can actually offer you. That is because we are hardwired that way. We will seek our own good unless we have become convinced that someone has already accomplished it. So if you're a Christian here this morning and you're like, I want to, yeah, I hear Paul's call, I want to try and do that, but how do I do that? Then the goal is not to go out and just strive really hard. The goal is to go, why are you having a hard time laying down your rights? What do you think your rights are going to give you? Because in fact, Christ and Christ alone has given you everything that you need. Because you see, if we believe that Jesus has already accomplished our deepest needs, we know there is nothing left our rights can give us. Nothing more our agenda can accomplish for us. And we can lay them down for those around us and for the glory of the one who rescued us. Would you pray with me? Father, over this time, as we, I'll be honest, Lord, and you know this because I've prayed this this week, but I'll say it again. Words fail to really be able to explain, grasp, or even apply the beauty of this passage. Who is like the Lord our God, who humbled himself with the broken to dwell? Who is like our God who continues to dwell with the broken through the power of the Spirit? Who is like our God who wills for the faults of sinners to perish, but not the sinner themselves? If I were in your shoes, God, all I would do is use everything in my power for my own agendas. 
but you are loving. And so if we do nothing else this, this morning, we just want to give you praise for that. But we also ask that you would shape us into a kind of people that reflect this to our city. That we would look on our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers. We would look on others within the church and we would think to ourselves, how can I best outdo them in honor? How can I best serve them? Because you have given me everything. There's nothing left I have to get. And Lord, as you do that, would you make us united in this? So the world looks into this community and sees something it cannot comprehend. The only answer for it would be that there is a God in heaven who has redeemed us and turned us right side outward. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.